The second wave of the pandemic is well underway. The national epidemic curve shows that case counts have far surpassed peak levels seen during the first wave. An average of about 4,800 cases are now being reported daily. Moreover, epidemic growth is continuing at a rapid pace, and about 15% more daily cases are reported this week compared to the last. And hospitalizations have reached record highs. Hospitalizations have been increasing for many weeks following consistently elevated disease activity over the past two months. Over the past week, an average of almost 1,800 people with COVID-19 are being treated in Canadian hospitals on any given day, including over 375 people in intensive care units. Threatening the healthcare system across the country. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver, and this is why. What we're going to do today is a bit of a thought experiment. Consider it a bit of an inoculation against fear. But don't be fooled. Bending the pandemic curve downward is deadly serious. The cases across the country are spiking massively. Uh, we are facing a winter that's going to drive people inside more and more. Uh, and we're really at risk of seeing uh, caseloads go up uh, and hospitals get overwhelmed and more loved ones dying. So we need to do everything we can right now to slow the spread of COVID-19, to stop this spike in its tracks. So what happens if we can't slow the rapid increase in cases and bend the curve yet again? What is the worst case scenario? Well, before we get to the worst case scenario, let's look at how much space hospitals in Canada usually operate at. So one of the things about Canadian healthcare, uh, and it differs in different provinces somewhat, but we have very low numbers of beds per population. So our um, healthcare capacity is actually quite a good deal lower than in other wealthy countries, OECD countries, certainly lower than the United States. Um, and that's because we, you know, we have not invested in the past decade or even more in both primary care or hospitals or, you know, that sort of thing. And some of that has been strategic and others of it has just been not increasing it at the rate of population growth and how um, our populations are aging. So actually our, you know, our hospitals, as, as we as Canadians uh, often know, are, you know, at capacity in the best of times. Dr. Barry Pakes is a public health physician and assistant professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. And what we need to do in COVID is we needed to, in the first wave, shut down those, those operating rooms and shut down a lot of the normal stuff we do and tell people not to come to emergency rooms in order to open up enough capacity to deal with the truly urgent uh, COVID concerns. Um, and, and that's what we're facing right now. It's a little bit more gradual and a little bit more systematic right now, but we still do risk being overwhelmed. Making space for a surge in COVID patients means surgeries are having to be delayed. And thanks to the pandemic, people are putting off seeing their family docs. But could that conversion process, making more space for coronavirus patients, take over an entire hospital? I, I don't think, you know, the hospital is going to go entirely COVID, but certainly there are floors that are going COVID. Um, you know, hospitals now in the second wave have some alternatives. So they've put up some walls in larger rooms. They've actually got an emergency room sort of pop-up tents that are actually sort of negative pressure tents inside certain rooms in the hospital, particularly an emergency room where you have to do procedures that are potentially, you know, 
significant spreading events like intubating, putting a tube down someone's throat to help them breathe. And you can only do that when you have negative pressure. And there's only one negative pressure room in many, in many even advanced emergency rooms. And so they put up these pop-up tents with, with these vacuums in them. And, you know, those are, um, you know, solutions, but, you know, a lot of the equipment, for example, is outside those tents. So, you know, what healthcare workers are able to do and how they function is dramatically affected, not only in that extreme way, but, um, you know, all of the PPE they have to put on makes seeing people in emergency rooms, making, makes, um, you know, anesthesia, uh, surgeries, or regular old primary care that much more difficult, somewhat lower volumes, as well as, you know, more challenging to diagnose uh, people if you're doing things virtually or if there's, you know, any kind of greater distance or even a challenging relationship because of mask, some of the psychosocial stuff is di more difficult to communicate. There are so many um, ways that COVID is, is impacting us. And the more cases there are, the more deaths there are, the more this impacts our healthcare system overall, the more you see that uh, infiltrating into the system. And that's what we see with the, you know, big second wave that we're having now. So is Canada's healthcare system showing cracks under the stress of this pandemic? Uh, I mean, we've already got all of those first cracks and, and those first cracks really haven't gone away since the spring. Um, the most obvious cracks and, and the ones that are talked about in the media most are these ICU beds, the thing we're measuring, you know, the things mm -hmm. we measure are, are, are definitely important. So acute care beds taken up by COVID patients, ICU beds taken by COVID patients are the things that are in the media. They're in the media because they are important. And that's why we're reporting on them. All the other things are, are sometimes difficult to measure. So we definitely know that some countries, um, in, including Canada, we're looking at overall mortality. So we can't, you know, we don't have data systems, unfortunately, and certainly not in Ontario where I am. Alberta is a little bit better, uh, but we don't have data systems to be able to really understand what's going on. But we certainly have people studying it. And the simplest one is looking at overall mortality. And we know how many people have died of COVID or, you know, we're pretty good about that. We don't know how many people have died of all these other things um, uh, because our healthcare system is not functioning or our society is not functioning in many ways, uh, but we do know how many people are dying overall. And we can see the difference between a normal year and right now we subtract those COVID uh, patients and we can see that our death rates are up. Um, and in many countries, we know that. Canada, we don't have um, as good numbers, but certainly we know in some countries it's as much as 20 or 30% increased mortality. Some of that is due to COVID cases that are not identified and others are due to you know all of these other problems. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that's really significant, really the full sort of post-mortem on that is only going to happen as the months go on and maybe even after COVID. Um, but hopefully we will come to understand that a little bit better. Is there a, a possibility or a scenario with, in which, you know, these cracks worsen and, uh, you know, hospitals literally become over, overrun? Uh, I mean, we saw images in, from other countries in this first wave of, uh, you know, COVID patients waiting in hallways. What could, could that happen in Canada? Absolutely. That did happen in the first wave. And, and that is happening right now. For example, where I was associate medical officer in Peel, um, Peel region, which is right next to Toronto, which has, you know, exceptionally high rates of, of COVID right now. And, and, you know, a couple of the hospitals there are really, um, you know, they are overwhelmed. And, and uh, you know, we, we don't have a breaking point where everybody in the hospital just puts up their hands and says, well, that was it. We're, we're at a breaking point. Um, you know, we, we, you know, keep slogging through it and we make do and we do the best that we can. 
Um, and so there isn't this sort of point where we say it's all over. Um, and we are we're definitely not where they were, you know, in Italy at the at the worst of things or in New York where they're the worst of things. But, you know, to be honest, for many patients and many healthcare providers, whether it be doctors or nurses or frankly, hospital administrators who've been working, you know, tirelessly like school principals, uh, unrecognized in many ways here, um, you know, th there's a point past which it's just very difficult to continue. And because we've been doing this for so long, um, they're already, I think, many of them past that point, and yet they continue on. So I don't think we're going to see this this point where we say, you know, that's it, we're overwhelmed. But in many places, it, uh, we are somewhat. And the key there is that some places are overwhelmed, others are not, and others can help out. So we can, in, in the GTA, for example, transfer patients to other hospitals that are certainly at capacity or close to it, but are able to help out. Uh, public health units who are doing uh, contact tracing, when they're unable to, to do that because they're overwhelmed, they can send some of their cases to other health units to help them out. When all of the health units, when all of the hospitals in a region are at that breaking point and can't accept the overflow from others, um, even when it's extremely urgent, you know, that's where you have people really in extremis, uh, you know, I hate to use the word dying in the streets because that's not really what people are doing, but, you know, dying in the hallways potentially and, and dying when they didn't need to. Uh, and when they wouldn't otherwise have, whether it's from COVID or other things. We, we're not quite there yet. And, and that's what all the governments, all the public health authorities are trying to avoid. Uh, Dr. Pakes, let's switch to the rural-urban divide in healthcare. How robust is rural healthcare in this country? And could it decline to surges in COVID-19 numbers sooner than its city cousin? Absolutely. So the, it is no secret whatsoever that... Um, the difference between rural, urban, even suburban uh, medicine is is dramatic. I don't think people always appreciate how dramatic it it is. I also work, you know, just north of of Toronto in a, a city of 200,000, 300,000 people. It's 45 minutes away. And I can tell you that the uh, primary care, specialty care, and, and in some ways, inpatient and hospital care is not the same as 45 minutes away in any way, shape or form. And you know, has deteriorated quite a bit, at least in Ontario, because of a lack of, of funding through successive governments. Um, and, and that simply during COVID or time of any stress, whether it be H1N1 in 2009 or now, um, is, is exacerbated. All of these in, inequities are exacerbated significantly. Uh, and, and that's true, you know, uh, north of Toronto, and it's most certainly true, you know, four or five hours away. And everyone is doing the best that they can. Um, and, uh, and, and in many ways, pretending that those differences uh, don't exist or during, doing our best to mitigate them, but absolutely, they, they absolutely do exist. So we've had SARS uh, in 2009, now COVID-19, uh, this, you know, for this past year, uh, or almost past year now, um, how should provincial governments view the threat of, uh, of, of pandemics and epidemics? Um, you know, the the unfortunate reality is we haven't just had SARS and and uh, and COVID. We've had uh, in between there, we've had Ebola, we've had Zika, we've had H1N1. Um, you know, uh, we've had Lyme disease spreading uh, in, in, you know, southern parts uh, of the country. Um, we've had a number of um, novel uh, either threatened epidemics or potential epidemics that have um, highlighted the need for this public health capacity in, in different ways each time. Um, and the reports that are generated 
at the end of each one of these, including, you know, right back to SARS. If you go through the SARS report, the Naylor report, um, every single point there, you'd say, wow, that's a brilliant idea. We should probably do that before the next pandemic. Well, that was in 2003. Some of those things we acted on and uh, created the Public Health Agency of Canada. In Ontario, the Public, uh, Public Health Ontario was created. Um, but, you know, over the years, whether it's defunding it or bringing it more underneath, you know, provincial uh, um, auspices as opposed to being independent, you know, we've seen erosion of the capacity to act and respond. And as a result, we're seeing some of the situation that we're seeing now. Many in the public don't really see those, those cracks because I think people in these organizations, whether it's in frontline, you know, hospital, primary care, public health are, are, you know, working absolutely overtime and trying to um, do the best they can, but all of us on the inside certainly see those relationships, uh, how they could have been better, how we could have had structures that allowed us to communicate better and act more efficiently. Um, and the consequences of, of not having those are that, you know, uh, the response is not as robust as it could have been. What is your best advice to, to, to individuals who are listening to this to, to, to prevent our healthcare system from being overwhelmed? Right, so the, the best advice is really the simplest advice, which is do not interact with people outside of your immediate household unless it is absolutely essential. And, and that's simply it. You know, any, any more intricate or, you know, detailed advice, um, you know, misses the key message. And that really is it. At, at this point in the pandemic, you do not go out, do not interact uh, unless it's absolutely necessary. And I think that's something um, difficult for people to do. Uh, many people are doing it and, and a lot of people are not doing it. Uh, people are saying, well, if I'm masking and distancing um, and it's all outside, you know, I can do that. And, and, you know, that probably is safe for you on an individual level, makes a lot of sense to people. But on a population level right now where we are in most, you know, in, in, in Alberta, BC, in Ontario, in Quebec, at least, you know, sticking to your individual personal household, you know, is the way to go. You need to go to work. You, you know, and that's, you know, you can still probably do that. You know, kids are going to school in most jurisdictions and that's an exception to that rule. But outside of those things, you know, that is what people need to do in order to prevent further spread. I got a chance to chat with Tom Sampson. He's the outgoing chief of SEMA or the Calgary Emergency Management Agency. Our role is multifold. I mean, we're to try and ensure public safety, uh, the continuity of essential service provision. So that's uh, you know, making sure that the water's on or, you know, police, fire, uh, EMS come to your door to maintain situational awareness about what's going on to try and communicate with the public. And then, uh, and then you know, when you talk about support, support any order-related issues out of the medical chief medical officer of health. And then, you know, to, to, to when this is all over, figure out how we best recover and we get ourselves back on our feet. But our plans are for all those things. And we've been planning for quite a while for a pandemic. You made the comment that maybe it was in October that, that you have layers upon layers of plans for this pandemic that, um, and, and you were able to pull old plans off the shelf and, and implement them for the city, like for the city of Calgary. I'm wondering if you can, um, you know, it, it, tell me what the, those plans were, uh, what kind of business areas within the city that they were, um, uh, the, that they addressed and what are the, the, the typical sort of steps that, that, um, that went into, or what, what did those plans typically say uh, and, and how those are going to be, how those are used in the pandemic? So 
think there's probably about, you know, and I, I won't say it, but there's a number of things I need to knit together for you in that mm-hmm. regard. So we, we started with an infectious disease management plan that was built off of SARS um, and, you know, the uh, the original SARS outbreak in, in Ontario, and then subsequently Ebola and those sorts of things. And from that infectious disease management plan, we knew how we would uh, structure our system in order to respond. So that's the physical hierarchy of the city of Calgary. But we also knew what we would buy in advance for supplies. And so, you know, the, the numbers and amounts of personal protective equipment. And over the years, those things got refined because quite honestly, in the early days, we had everybody buying everything and, and it wasn't as, as refined and coordinated as it should be. And so we've, over the years, refined and coordinated that to some of the best materials to have, some of the best masks to protect our first responders, you know, police, fire, uh, and others. And so, um, those things have all been done. We then got heavily involved in business continuity. And so not only business continuity within the city of Calgary, but business continuity with our friends, people like the Chamber um, and, you know, the small business uh, groups and those sorts of things. And so we have information on how to keep your business running. And, and, and I have to admit that the earliest information was all based on, you know, if somebody flooded or if, some, if the power went out, how would you keep yourself going? But what we didn't realize was that information was absolutely transferable to uh, the capacity to run your business in COVID, uh, you know, as long as your business can be open. Um, we, we then, I think, you know, and so too did the rest of Alberta go to this shift of the capacity to work remotely. And so whilst, you know, the pandemic started in the city of Calgary probably had about 3,000 people that had the capacity to work remotely. We're now up, you know, greater than 5,000 people can work remotely and we're actually quite efficient at doing that. But the next step in that needed to be that from an emergency operations center where we classically gather a whole bunch of people to deal with a problem. And, you know, like go back to the days of the 2013 flood, we had a couple hundred people working out of our emergency operations center. Now we work it with eight and, and, and we link in with those people electronically we can break off into meeting rooms and we can do all those things so that we know exactly how we make it go if you look at at another initiative that was started we we asked people in their respective groups to start tactical operation centers and we've seen of course started way before this the calgary police service started their own the real-time operation center but they've also got a police tactical operation center that helps them make decisions and i don't mean to speak for the police not, not at all. But those same concepts are in place with roads, they're in place with transit, um, they're in place with our, our building services. And so those groups are, 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 are functioning at a far higher level when they fire up their tactical operations center. You see, we can no longer afford to work at the speed of government. We just can't. Mm. And, uh, and, and we are government. And, and I say that to you, no tongue in cheek. We just have to be different in the way that we do things. And we have learned in Calgary, we have learned in Alberta to do those those things differently. Go back to the flood. And when I see people retire, they say, I, I want to work like, we, you know, m- one of the highlights of my career was I got to work in the flood and that was the most productive feeling I ever had. And then subsequently people said, well, you know, the, the first wave of COVID was that productive wave that I had too. 
And so I, I think the thing that we need to do as municipalities, as the province, as this country, is we need to seize on those things. And those things that are that have stopped us as, as bureaucrats, we need to move out of our way. Mm-hmm. Because that's how we actually respond well in this community. Now, I'm sure there's pieces I've missed. Uh, but the last piece that I'll add to you is we've really become an agency in Calgary. And so, you know, we're over 60 members, uh, you know, in our emergency management agency. Everything from ATCO Gas to the Calgary Zoo, mm-hmm. who, by the way, I was on the phone with today, you know, about the importance of zoo lights. And so we, all of those groups, uh, they, they, they encompass all the school boards, they encompass not-for-profits, they, you know, the chamber, the, you know, the, our, our own administration in the city. All of those groups are brought to bear when there's a problem. I think one of the biggest challenges with COVID is it's not, it's not directly ours, it's, it's the provinces. And so we're here in this supporting role. And we're doing our very, very best to ensure that whatever the medical officer of health, the minister of health, whatever they need, is done for the betterment of Calgarians. SEMA has grown, to my understanding, by leaps and bounds, largely through uh, trial by fire or by flood. Um, and so you, you've, it, it sounds like you, you've developed a, a robust uh, knowledge and understanding of, of, of how to manage emergencies. Um, and uh, we're now in one with this pandemic. Um, but I also understand that you're in, in contact with, with other jurisdictions. I'm, I'm wondering um, if other cities, provinces across the country uh, have, you know, the same sort of robust, to your understanding, robust preparation for an emergency like this. And I'm wondering if you can speak to the, whether uh, SEMA has shared learnings from, you know, the 13 floods and other events? You bet. So I think that we're pretty fortunate in Calgary and we're unfortunate. Uh, I'll start with the unfortunate. We're unfortunate that Alberta has more than its fair share of incidents that have occurred. Uh, You know, uh, underground uh, fires, floods, you know, wind storms, uh, hail storms that, you know, just created $1.4 billion of damage in the Northeast. So we're unfortunate in that regard. Um, Alberta, sorry, Calgary has roughly $555 million insurable loss per year uh, as a result of these events that keep happening to us. And so we're fortunate in the sense that our city council, uh, the province, have helped us in establishing an emergency management agency that brings together large groups to deal with this. On a local level, we chair what's known as the South Central Emergency Management Committee. That's the group that, of the communities around us, and we co-chair that with, a, with a, another member. But we meet on a, on a regular basis, and uh, you know we meet with that group. We're also part of what we call M9, or the large nine municipalities in Alberta. We meet with them on a regular basis. And then finally, we meet with a group called the Big City Emergency Managers. And these are meetings one hour per month sort of thing. Or right now, we're meeting with our, our, our South Central group every week. But we're, we're sharing information. And so, you know, I'm given information from uh, what our friends in Nova Scotia are doing as well as given our friends, you know, from Vancouver and Surrey who are members. And so we share that information and somebody will 
pop up an email and they'll say, hey, does anybody have X, Y, or Z? And uh, we all operate from a position of we should share. And, and, you know, the kind of sharing that I talk about is one where we include warts and all. Mm. So, you know, and by that, uh, you know, a friend of mine's statement, we share what also went wrong with that program, right? And what went right with it. And so that, that gives the next group who, uh, who, who might be contemplating uh, taking on an issue that way, it gives them a leg up on it. This Is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca, and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and stay home. We'll see you soon.